Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The economy in Canada and, you know, in my mind, covering all the the advances Canada has made to make economic ties around the world and all those trips the prime ministers made and the focus on branching out and the global economy. And now we have the Chinese election interference story and has put the spotlight on just how tough it is to put together a political strategy, national security, national interest, and then also expand your trade. Because after we have got rid of and sent a diplomat back home to China, we are hanging, embracing ourselves for some kind of retaliation. A lot of that could be economic already. As I mentioned in the tease, lobster fishermen are worried that their industry, which has really been growing and especially with a Chinese market, and they've been enjoying it for several years. Is that all going away? And how do you reach out, but also protect yourself? Joining us is Andreas Schotter, Associate Professor of International Business at Western University's Ivy Business School. Andreas, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good afternoon. It's a pleasure. It's an important topic to me, too. It really is. Andreas, here we are, you know, it's always been about um, expanding and now it's about protecting. We've seen this before. We saw it as we were trying to come up with the new NAFTA. All of a sudden, uh, Canadians went, wow, we took all all the free trade for granted with America. And then we had to go into it with the nitty gritty. And now we're learning more about our economic tentacles with China, and this is serious business. Andreas, how much of a big deal is this to you? I think it's the right thing to do. We need to protect our uh, national interests, and interference is never good. Um, uh, prior to my academic career that I started seven years ago, I was a long time in the industry, and that, uh, amongst other jobs, I was a regional CEO for a large manufacturing business with three factories in China, mainland China. And uh, to be, and, and I've done a lot of China research. At the time, I saw China as a wild east. I was, I would say, today perhaps a bit too naive. That was uh, the uh, uh, you know post Deng Xiaoping period. Uh, Jiang Zemin was president at the time, and everything was open. Everything was a go as long as the Chinese was uh, wealthier tomorrow than, or better off to, tomorrow than they would be today. Everything was good. I have a very different perspective at this right now. I think, uh, and I don't agree often with our prime minister yeah. and the government there, <laughs> the current government, and it's not a political perspective, it's just a factual perspective. I think it's 100% the right uh, thing to do. Will there be retaliation? Likely. How big will that be? Yeah, they buy again North England lobster instead of PEI lobster or, you know, or Nova Scotia mm-hmm. lobster. This may happen. 
but uh, I don't think the, the, uh, the price to pay, uh, you know, is too high to not to make such a move for independence. We are a free and independent country in Canada, and we need to defend this. And this has become mm-hmm. so much more difficult about over the last few years with rising nationalism around the world. Uh, I think it's absolutely correct. You had to do it, and and it's 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 uh, so bang on as you said. The Wild East—that's the way it was. How does it feel? I mean, when you look and we look at lessons learned here on how different the reality is, because it was it was all about the possibility of it, this engagement, economic engagement. And now, did we make a mistake there? Or overreach, maybe, is a better word. So about five, six years ago, I actually gave a TV radio interview, and I said that uh, the government was not sophisticated enough with this approach to particular China as uh, uh, a diverse, diversification of trade away from the United States. Today, this seems to be like a blessing. I still think that we are joined at the hips of the United States uh, more than we have ever been. You know, you can, of course, look at certain numbers. It might not be the case, but in reality, it is. You look at the uh, current investment uh Deals that the that U.S. government creates that forces the Canadian government to to basically match investment uh, support, like in the case of the BW plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. Mm-hmm. So yes, we need to split. But look at other things. I was very positive about the CETA deal, the which uh, the Canada European Trade Agreement, and this was fantastic at the beginning. But look how mm-hmm. much cheese have we moved since? We haven't moved much. So when you look at what actually tangibly came out of the deal, nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's the part they have to be much better. We have lots of trading partners that are willing to trade with us, right, to have a more intensive relationship, and they can move services and products across borders. Yeah, China might not be the place right now to look at to push it, but other countries are. But we are very complacent in Canada. This linkage with the United States is just so convenient. And I see very, very little happening beyond, uh, you know, going basically with a product or service to the South or accepting investment from the South in into uh, Canada. All right. I'm going to ask you on that, though. You know, if you talk about having your eyes open as we saw Russia invade Ukraine and we saw all the mm-hmm. supply chains crash. Then we started to ask around the world in the way, wow, is it such a good idea to be doing business with our foes? And there, there we had lessons learned. And then now we have this, this Chinese experience. Mm-hmm. You seem to be saying we are complacent maybe and we just take advantage of the great mm-hmm. market in the United States. But isn't there also concern doing business with allies? It seems to be a good idea because they might not want to make you freeze in the winter. No, I, I think it's a great uh, opportunity uh, for us and we should do that more. And, we, you know, as part of my research, we see, you know, some of the executives I'm working with for my research, they talk about deglobalization. I don't think we see a deglobalization, we see a reglobalization. Mm-hmm. So we see a move away from global value chains to regional ones that are more complex, right? That's what we're seeing all around the world, be it Southeast Asia, be it uh, in a way mm-hmm. in the African and European continent itself, yeah, or be it North America for that matter, right? So that's a good thing for us. Plus, products that are happening today, products and services, do not require this complicated 
global value chain disaggregation anymore. Regional is fine. We can play a role here. The only pro- problem is that our trading partner south of the Canadian border, so the United States, is so darn powerful, right? And I'm worried about that we are losing, to a certain extent, our economic freedom because President Biden has not rolled back America first from Trump, if at all. No, I mean it is, and yeah, and that has yeah, and that has been such a big, big, huge part of America, and it seems it's a nonpartisan. Healthcare system is under stress. It was before the pandemic and it opened up and showed us so much. And one of the things, the part of the stories that we saw is that people were not getting tested and people were appearing with more advanced conditions. Well, our screening process because of finances has certainly been under scrutiny for a long time. And now there's a move in the United States, a call to have screening lowered to the age of 40 for women for breast cancer. And some of the research there is showing that it would certainly change the outcome for many people who are diagnosed with breast cancer. That call is happening in the United States here in Canada as we look at the real a tightening of our finances and and in so many ways our screening process is this something that we should do joining us is Dr. Majola Amole Dr. Amole thank you for being here thank you so much for having me all right I, as we look at this call in in the United States does it matter does it resonate with you well 100% um i'm a and not just me but quite a bit of the Canadian Association of Radiologists have put out a position statement that we need to start screening uh, women and people who have breasts at starting at the age of 40 and at least uh, start with it yearly up until 10 years until we think that their uh, life expectancy is going to end. And the reason for this is the greatest benefit that screening provides mm-hmm. in terms of when we talk about dying from breast cancer it's actually those people from the age of 40 to 49, because these are the ones wow. that tend to be uh, grow rapidly, more hormone sensitive. And so they, those people will present with higher stage disease if they present with more aggressive disease. And so we know that if you actually screen this population, that we can actually reduce the risk of late stage cancer by 40%. And then overall, the risk of dying from breast cancer goes down by 25%. So they get the most benefit from early screening. Obviously, there's downsides to screening early. We, You have more dense breasts when you're younger. It hasn't become mm-hmm. fat replaced yet. And so it's going to pick up a lot of things that you're going to biopsy and not end up being anything. I do think we have to weigh that with those patients. And when people say that, you know what, mm-hmm. I'd rather have a biopsy that doesn't show anything then miss a cancer that becomes a later stage cancer that requires chemo and more treatment. All right, you know, 40 to 49. And if that's the age group, why haven't we been screening people in that in that capacity? Well, I think part of it is that we don't we didn't necessarily have the data to prove it. Even the data that we use now for screening uh, in Canada is based on a very flawed study. And there's recognition that that study is flawed. And I think that we just have a better understanding of cancer biology, of presentation of cancer, that 
it's now prompting more of us in the medical community who deal with breast cancer to be like, you know what, we really should have the screening at the age of 40 because they would have the greatest benefit from early detection. And we also know that, you know, in Canada, we have a very diverse population. We know that Asian women and women from the um, West African diaspora, so anyone who is that became part of the slave trade or from West Africa, we actually have more aggressive triple negative disease that actually the age of incidence is like 45 compared to Caucasian women, which have hormone positive disease, where the age of incidence mm-hmm. is probably around 60 to 65. So, you know, even with the change in demographics, we don't necessarily take that all into account before. It's just kind of like a wide blanket statement. Everyone should be screened at this age. But if we actually tease it out, there's a great benefit for racialized women in Canada to be screened starting at the age of 40 and um, for all women, honestly, to also start screening at the age of 40. Is that what it means, too? My next question I was going to ask you in the study in the United States, they said uh, this was based on, quote, new and more inclusive science. Is that what you mean? Yes, I think that that is what it is in the sense of, you know, we don't like medicine, like many of our institutions, is it is uh, based on a white patriarchy. And so there's not always an understanding of like, well, actually, other people are presenting with this. And then we also have like migration, right? And so our population is more diverse, which means that we also have to respond with providing our patients um, an inclusive holistic way of looking at breast cancer, and that is to say that, you know, certain um, ethnic groups have aggressive disease that start earlier, they benefit from screening. I would actually go as far in saying by the age of 30, you should mm-hmm. have had the conversation with your healthcare provider about what your risk of breast cancer is, whether there's a family history, you know, um, you know, your ancestry. So it's better understood. And so that, so by the, by the time 40 comes along, it's something that's already in your mind, but you know what, at 40, I have to start my screening. It is. And, you know, this, this could be costly. Do the benefits outweigh the costs here, doctor? I would say that they do. Uh, if we look at the cost of screening versus the cost of chemotherapy, immune therapy, uh, hormonal therapy uh, for people who have breast cancer. I, I do think early screening beats that, but and also I'm a physician. I'm not, um, I don't honestly care that much about like financing things because at the end of the day, I rather my patients who do well, breast cancer, all stages, you still do well, but your quality of life does change whether you get chemotherapy, whether you get radiation therapy on top of it. And for some people, that's their, like, you know, having numbness in their fingers permanently, that affects their livelihood. So in a way, I think when we, like, we have to weigh also not just the, the, the amount that it costs to do a mammogram, but what happens in terms of quality of life and also your ability to work, right, and contribute to the society. That also has to be taken into account when we're doing a cost-benefit analysis. Getting stuff early, it's not just even breast cancer, is it? I, I was just talking to a, a doctor a few weeks ago who was lamenting not even screening for lung cancer where you could save lives. Kind of the same, the same situation. You just get it too late. 
Yeah, 100%. I do think that, you know, uh, part of the guidelines that were made previously was based on old information where, you know, the the mortality probably wasn't as good. Now we know that if if we catch cancers, different kinds of cancer at an earlier stage, the benefit is great. Like we are able to cure people of their cancer, but really and truly the most important thing to help with that is the timing of when you do it. And so, you know, I encourage all my patients to do their colon cancer screening at starting at the age of 50, or if you have a family history of polyps or colorectal cancer to screen, you know, earlier, uh, depending on the age of the person who has it in the family. Uh, But just having these conversations with your healthcare provider so you have a better understanding of your risk and so you can really um, advocate for yourself in terms of screening. All right. So is this something that you think is going to be moved on here? I mean, this has got a lot of a lot of attention. As we said, it's this is breast cancer, but other areas. And we've looked at it during the pandemic and we had even people not even doing the regular, irregular screening here. Yeah. Can you feel that it could become a focus? I I, think. I think that for this, for it to move, it really has to come from people. Uh, we, as you know, we are the taxpayer dollars. It's our money that are being spent. And we should have an understanding of how our money is being spent. And if preventative care, which is the most important, and we know that if you actually invest in preventative care, you save millions of dollars downstream in terms of reactive care, which is treating, you know, cancers at later stages. So I would say that really, it really demands upon us as um, a population, as Canadians, to be able to uh, talk to our elected officials about making this move with uh, um, the government of Canada. Some provinces, BC is already doing it. Alberta does it from the age of 45. And then the rest after that do it at after the age of 50. So, you know, BC is already progressive and able to do that. So what does what what does BC have that we can't do in Ontario? It's true. What about um, what about when we look at prostate cancer? It's always kind of tied in a lot with breast cancer, hormonal cancers. Are you aware that this benefit would help getting it earlier? We know it's a very slow growing cancer. Is it different? There's a lot of research looking at screening for prostate cancer, and basically the um, guidelines are that we shouldn't screen for uh, prostate cancer with doing annual PSAs, uh, so doing the uh, the blood work. But actually, when you do the analysis of it and you break it down amongst different groups, we actually found that people who are ethnically black, and so that's people from the West African diaspora again, actually have a benefit from doing PSA screening because they have a higher rate of prostate cancer and they also have more aggressive phenotypes of prostate cancer. You know, and all of most of this data is from the US, which has mm-hmm. which even when they correct for the differences in health insurance and, you know, social economics that is a bit different than Canada, you still find that men who are ethnically black have more aggressive disease. And this is the group that actually do benefit from doing uh, prostate screening. So I do think that, you know, similar to what the position paper had said for breast cancer screening is that we really have to take in the different nuances of different ethnic groups when we're making guidelines for different cancers, because we are not all the same and we don't all experience the same types of cancer or, um, 
have the same way of, in terms of treating the cancer. Mm-hmm. And we miss the boat here. It was always such a, a great crying out from women saying, hey, you know, men's health is treated very, very differently. And sometimes women are put on ignore, not with breast cancer, but with heart disease. There's a, a calling out. And now you're talking about this diversity. Is this the wave of the future? You know, we're always hearing from scientists and medical researchers that soon we're going to be able to get really granular on the individual. But really, that's what you're saying, the individual, including the ethnicity here, too. 100%. I actually would argue, I would say that women are still being ignored when it comes to women's health. Uh, Many um, women have come to me saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. I've felt this lump for over a year or over a few months, and Mm -hmm. I was told that this is nothing, that it's, you know, nothing to worry about. We'll do something. We'll we'll see what it's like in six months, and then it is a cancer. And so, I don't actually think that women's health is ever is prioritized. I do think it's still um, in the back burner. Um, but I don't ever think that it's you know it's never too late. And I do think that you know part of precision medicine and individualized medicine takes in your background. And you know we are even though race itself is a social construct, our genetics isn't. And there is parts of different parts of the world that have different genetic variances. And we also have to start including that in the way where we're screening and treating uh, different kinds of cancers. Is, is there any resistance for that or is it being welcomed in your opinion? Oh, there's always resistance. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew I the answer to that question. When you challenge uh, the status quo uh, where people like to say, well, I don't see color, but I'm like, well, you know what? Cancer does see your genetics, so it doesn't matter. And so this is not about prioritizing one group over the other, but it's looking at the fact that different groups have different presentations. And so we have to take that into account when we're talking about genetics. But I, I, I think it's hard uh, for um, people in established who are established in medicine, but I do think, you know, the newer graduates who are coming out have a much more nuanced understanding of that because they've been taught that. And they kind of they, we see the changes uh, socially and politically, and so we have a better understanding of how genetics and ethnicity tie in together. All right, you know, as as we look at this, and it's kind of an eye opener here. Is is this going to spread? Do you think? I mean, are we going to start again looking at people as individuals? Well, I hope so. Um, you know, I most of us that. Uh, you know, when we practice medicine, especially in oncology care, we, we do try our best to individualize their care uh, down to the genetics of their of their uh, cancer because two people can have breast cancer and have completely different, can have different mm-hmm. treatment plans based mm-hmm. on the genetics of theirs. But I, there is definitely a move, definitely more robust in the U.S. that tends to, that do collect race-based data and to start following the cultural and it's called anthropological uh, oncology to start following how that affects presentation. So I do think, you know, in the next 50 years, this conversation would sound really quaint because they're like, well, duh, of course we do that. Um, but I think at this stage, um, we're still, this is still a new frontier uh, in terms of uh, personalized uh, medicine. 
All right, final question here. What's it like? I mean, there's women who are hearing this story who've gone through breast cancer and they must be so frustrated, which is the polite way of saying angry. And, you know, you just told a little bit of a story. I had this lump or something. But there's people here who probably saying, you know, if I did get this earlier, I wouldn't be in this predicament here. A hundred percent. And I completely... I can sympathize with them as best as I can uh, to say that I hear you. Um, you know, we not catching it early changed the trajectory of your, not just you, but your family mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, your, your future. And that's mm-hmm. completely understandable that you feel anger. Uh, I find that like uh, quite a bit of women that I work with have turned their anger into just, you know, passionate advocacy mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm standing in the gap and truly trying to encourage uh, women and people who have breasts in terms of advocating for themselves. There's a great organization in Toronto called the Olive Branch of Hope, which uh, is which focuses on helping and advocating for uh, black women and breast cancer because black women present earlier. So you have women in their early 30s, early 40s with breast cancer who were ignored for a few months, for six months, because, oh, you're too young to have breast cancer. I do think that after the anger phase, quite a bit of them have been able to turn it into a fuel for their advocacy to really get the word out that we need to start screening earlier. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. WestJet may be striking. So all that stuff is just increased in intensity. We've been giving the aviation industry a lot of attention, their woes during the pandemic, and then our rules of flying and our laws and our rights as, as flyers. Joining us is John Graddock, a lecturer with McGill University's Aviation Management Program. John, how are you? Not bad, Arlene. Thank you. Great to have you, John. WestJet business, post-pandemic, all of it. WestJet kind of, it's kind of like the government workers walking out. Clearly, they know what they're doing here, right, with this threat of of strike. Yeah, well, you know, I think that, you know, when you're talking about, you know, the current state of Canadian aviation, the the story with WestJet is a, um, it's going to compound the problems and the issues that Canadian aviation is having. Um, I think that uh, the odds of that strike happening, you know, are are, are getting better that it's not going to happen because I think we've been looking at, you know, a, a 72-hour strike notice that was supposed to have been given uh, for a strike to happen on May 16th. That was not given. There was neither a lockout nor a strike. So, but I understand that talks are still going on 
and which is a good thing. And I hopefully that between now and Tuesday, that we'll be in a situation where we'll be able to say that we have a, a tentative agreement in place. What are we looking at here? You know, every time we're looking at any kind of a labor situation, we see ourselves in a little bit. It's a little bit about the workers of the future. What does WestJet represent? Well, the, the you know, I think what you're looking at in, in, in the WestJet situation is really a question about resources that WestJet has had uh, and what those resources mean to WestJet. Pilots are an essential service service provider within WestJet. Uh, and, you know, we need those pilots to work. And uh, without those pilots, you haven't got an airline. So it's really important that West recognize the value that these individuals bring to the party, and, and I know they do. The question right now is going to be one of trying to figure out what, the, what an appropriate wage package should look like and what's affordable by WestJet. Uh, and I think that's where the, the sticking points are going to be at this point in time. It is. What's it going to do? We're just talking about the price of things, a couple of economic things. First of all, if if WestJet does strike, wow, how much of the market does that take away for Canadian flyers? Well, I think that, you know, the, the Western Canadian marketplace is the one that's going to be the most affected, I believe, by the WestJet strike. I think that WestJet has made a very concerted effort over the last six months to kind of rebuild and to reinforce its Western Canadian presence. Uh, so there are a lot of cities in Western Canada that kind of depend on WestJet for services. I don't think there are any that are going to be essential services, that there's nobody going to be losing service air service as a result of a strike. But, you know, there's going to be a significant impact on quite a few Western Canadian markets. I'm not sure whether the existing services that are there besides WestJet could kind of fill in the blanks. Uh, so, yes, there will be some hardship, and there will be people who will have to kind of change their <laughs> travel plans as a result of this situation. All right. You know, when we uh, look at airlines and our ability to travel, it's such a big deal here in Canada. WestJet really offered a lot of opportunities to people, opened up new markets. But they're, as you said, they're focusing. Focusing means they've kind of struck a few areas of our country off. Yeah, they did. They really, when you look at, you know, the presence, if I look at WestJet a year ago, on Eastern Canada and looking at the services, let's say, out of Toronto to Montreal or Toronto, Ottawa, or even in, into the Maritimes, uh, you know, they, they've really retrenched their services and moved those services into into uh, Western Canada. So, you know, they've basically given up uh, most of their intercity operations that they had in Eastern Canada uh, and really built up what I call Fortress Alberta. Uh, and I think they want to really make sure that they've created that uh, that um, strong Western Canadian presence that will kind of detract from any competitor that thinks they can make an inroads into Western Canada. What about the rest of Canada? Big country. We pay a lot to get around it. Sometimes it's cheaper to go to Paris than it is to uh, fly a a short distance within your own country. Who's going to pick it up? What does the future look? Is it, is it grim or happy here on getting reasonable flights? You know, for domestic Canadian travel, I think that, you know, the days where, you know, going from Calgary to London, you know, or from Toronto to uh, to, to Paris is, you know, cheap, you know being uh, cheaper than flying, trans, you know, on the trans- transcontinental services in Canada. I think those days are long gone. I think we've got enough competition now in Canada with the ultra-low-cost carriers like Flair and Lynx. Uh, and you've got Porter who's expending their services into, mm-hmm. into Canadian markets. So we've got a significant amount of competition that will keep the Canadian domestic fares 
at a reasonable level, except if you want to fly in July and August, where it's going to cost you a fortune. But, you know, I think that, you know, the days of Canada being more expensive than the Atlantic, uh, than the North Atlantic are, are pretty well gone. I think we're going to be in a situation where, you know, the North Atlantic international services are going to stay up there in terms of prices and Canadian domestic services will be fairly reasonable. Is is Flair going to make it, John, the budget airline that is making hearts happy, but um, the carry-on very light? Uh, do you think they're going to make it as we oh, know they lost I, a couple yeah. of planes? I think so. I think that, you know, it's had its teething pains uh, over the last <laughs> few months. Um, from what I see, they kind of got their act together when it comes to um, performance of their operating plan. Uh, I think that, they, you know, you're going to be in a situation where they're going to have their ups and downs again. They're looking to grow to 21 airplanes uh, between now and the end of the year, which is a significant presence. So uh, I think that the the future is rosy for Flair. Um, you know, you've got Lynx that's trying to catch up to the Flair model. And then you have, you know, Porter with their 20 jets between now and the end of the year coming into the market. So there's going to be a lot of capacity in Canada for uh, domestic Canadian, and for uh, some market destinations this winter. Happy Mother's Day. But is it overworked? Is it pressure on women? I, I actually was having this conversation with a neighbor of mine this morning about the pressure of Mother's Day. And my next guest is uh, apparently not a huge fan of the day, although has really given a lot of attention to the world of the mother. Uh, Sarah Peterson is the author of Mumfluenced, Inside the Maddening, Picture-Perfect World of Mummy Influencer Culture. Perfect day. Good afternoon, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. This is the day of days, isn't it, for all those mum fluenced? And, you know, I have to say, and it's true, I was talking to a a friend and neighbor this morning about this. Right on this day, it's the epitome of a lot of the things you're saying in your book. How do you feel about Mother's Day and where we've gone? Yeah, I mean, it's the one day a year that, you know, mothers get breakfast in bed, they get cards, um, you know, there's commercial after commercial proclaiming we do the hardest job in the world. Um, but for the, you know, the 364 other days of the year, especially in the U.S., we are woefully, systemically unsupported. Um, we don't have universal paid leave. We don't have access to affordable quality child care. We have incomprehensive maternal health care. Um, the list goes on and on. So it really feels a bit of, it feels a little condescending at this point to celebrate Mother's Day. You know, it's, it's always so interesting. Things rise and they become large. And then sometimes an incident will mark it. We've recently had the death of a, a very famous mumfluencer. Yeah. Is that a moment for you here? Do you think? I mean, I'm I'm watching in social me- media all the fans really marking it. It's made a mark. Yeah, yeah. I wrote a piece about it for Slate actually. Um, Heather Armstrong was really the first writer of her kind. Um, millions of women and make them feel seen. Um, and foremost, she was an artist. She was a creative. Um, she's mm-hmm. pegged as being the first quote-unquote mommy blogger. But that's really such a 
reductive way to look at her. She changed how we write on the internet. And um, I, I spoke to so many people for the piece I wrote for Slate that said, you know, I don't think I would have become a writer, for her example. So she was really a pioneer. She was, and then and then they're they're everywhere, and they're mothers with power, and they they got to have it all. Though, as you say in in your book, they've got to be cute, and they got to be hip, and they gotta they got to dress their kids to match this. I, I Sarah, was it a freedom becoming a, a mummy blogger? Did it did it drive motherhood forward, or has it been a bit of a ball and chain? Yeah, it's, it's, that's a tough one. I mean, there are so many different types of momfluencers. Um, it's certainly not, you know, uh, a monolith culture by any means. So there's tons of momfluencers that use their platforms to um, raise awareness about so- social justice issues, for example, um, that use their platforms to educate and inform. But the momfluencers that make the most money are still white, cishet, um, conventionally attractive, thin, and um, you know, usually they have a huge house, they're doing kitchen remodels, and it really is a picture-perfect, idealized vision of motherhood that very, very, very few of us can relate to. But what draws the very people who can't relate to them, they're drawn to it, becomes this yeah. challenge, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so many of us are raised to view motherhood as sort of the penultimate achievement of our lives um, as women. And we're, we're really, you know, culturally indoctrinated with this idea that we should go to motherhood. It should be a natural fit. Um, we should know how to do it. We should find immense joy and satisfaction and fulfillment from it. So I think often we follow these accounts hoping that, you know, maybe she has figured it out in a way that I can't figure it out. Or, you know, maybe the 20% off code for the vitamins that she is linking to, maybe those will give me more energy to get through the day and, you know, not yell at my kids. And I, I think mostly what guides us or what propels us to follow these people is a sense of hope. It is the hope. Is it a false hope, though? I was really thinking about it. You think of all the pictures that Meghan Markle is putting out, and she's uh, you know married into royalty and everything. Clearly, one of the things she's probably got on her agenda right now is to be a momfluencer. <laughs> and you just see it, and you know, I mean, there's people cleaning up and all of it. It is a, it's a world of rubber rubber boots, but and flowers and planting pictures and everything. Is it a bit phony, Sarah? I'll, I'll just say it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the influencers who make their living doing this, um, it's not on them to give us every detail of their lives. Like, they don't owe us anything. Um, we, as the consumers, can always choose not to follow, for example, if something is making us feel insecure or inferior. Um, in many ways, these women are business women first and foremost. Um, they're making livings for their families, and if they are going to make more money by adhering to an ideal of motherhood that was created by white men hundreds of years ago to maintain power, then I can't really blame them for that. You know, they're not creating this ideal. None of us are. It was created well before us. So, yeah, I think there is a lot of responsibility on the consumer in terms of you know, interrogating how, how is this making me feel? Is it, you know, providing a positive for my life or is it not? Because we can always unfollow this stuff. 
I mean, you did it, mother of three. Uh, did you do it? Uh, did you do it for power, money? Was it an economic thing? What What drew you to that world? Um, to study in the world, or just to step into it and, oh, and become um, one? I mean, yeah, I just. Oh no, no, I I'm not a monfluencer. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've never been a mom influencer. Um, I was drawn into the world when I had a newborn and a toddler and was mm-hmm. consuming certain mom influencers, um, following their blogs and eventually on Instagram. And, you know, I was stuck changing diapers, going to music together classes, very much engaged in the labor of mothering. And I was viewing these, um, really colorful, vibrant, joyous accounts. And I think mostly subconsciously saying to myself, like, I want to be happier and more joyful. Um, I want motherhood to feel like an adventure the way it seems like it does for this person. But I also knew that motherhood is not, you know, all rainbows and, you know, hearts and flowers. Like, it's really hard. So I started studying it mainly to figure out, like, what is this disconnect between the reality and the performance? Sarah, I, I want to ask you, as, just as we were going into the break, I talked about the aspirational aspect. Magazines do this, don't they? What kind of a what kind of a 20-year-old are you? What kind of a 30-year-old? What kind of a 40-year-old? And there's different categories here about, and so I, I really see this now with mothers. They can be all sorts of mothers, and then they need the outfit, and they need the pictures. They need it all. It does feel a bit like Mommy Barbie in a way that can (laughs) feel a little infantilizing. Um, Yeah, but I think what's really powerful about the culture is that almost anything can be marketed to mothers if it's hinged on their, you know, goodness or fitness as a mother. Um, If you just think of peanut butter brand, um, choosy moms, choose GIF. Um, Really, so many consumer categories are targeted towards mothers in a way that isn't really true of fathers. So that's another reason it's a multi-billion dollar industry. There are just so many things. You know, there's home decor, there's clothing, there's toys, there's food, there's supplements, all of which can be marketed to mothers. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.